Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. On this final program of Dr. Neufeld's series on Romans, the heart of the gospel, we'll close with a very important lesson on the seven characteristics of saving faith. Now let's go back to the Bible with today's passage in Romans chapter 4, verses 16 to 25 with Dr. John Neufeld. We spent five weeks in Romans 1 to 4 and called this series The Heart of the Gospel. I love what Canadian pastor A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, said of the gospel. He said that the gospel tells rebellious men that God is reconciled, that justice is satisfied, that sin has been atoned for, that the judgment of the guilty may be revoked, the condemnation of the sinner canceled, the curse of the law blotted out, the gates of hell closed, the portals of heaven opened wide, the power of sin subdued, the guilty conscience healed, the brokenhearted comforted, and the sorrow and the misery of the fall undone. Oh, don't you know our ears need to hear that. All of this has been done through the cross, and all of this is accessed by faith and by faith alone. That's why to end this series on the heart of the gospel, we end it by giving the seven characteristics of saving faith. It's really a fitting end. Who wouldn't want what the gospel offers? But have we been sure that in this series, we have really defined faith well enough? We must acknowledge that a great many people are confused as to what we mean by faith. Some people have reduced faith to simply believing something without personal investment that comes from it. Here's an example. Imagine you were to say, I read a report recently that the stock market is going to rise 25% this coming year, and I believe that. Well, you might, but mere belief is not the same as faith. Faith says if the stock market is going to rise by 25% this coming year, well, on that basis, I've invested everything I have into it. The point, of course, has nothing to do with the stock market or what it will or won't do this next year. The point has everything to do with the fact that genuine faith is a personal investment of all that we have. But can we flush that out and make it so practical that none of us will miss it? Can we describe saving faith in such a way that will make it clear, that will provide an invitation to all who hear to believe the gospel? There are seven marks of saving faith found in our passage, and to begin with, we want to read Romans 4, 16 and 17, which says, that's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul begins by telling us that everything depends on faith. There is, he says, a special relationship between grace and faith. Faith means trusting in God alone for our salvation and not trusting in any way in our own efforts. Grace means that God grants salvation as a gift, not as a result of something that we've earned. Grace alone through faith alone. Then having given the basic definition, Paul now moves to seven characteristics that are true of saving faith. If you were listening to me yesterday, you'll remember that I've already given the first of these characteristics. First of all, I've said that faith is established by being in God's presence. Paul said that Abraham believed in the presence of God. But before I move on, I do notice that he speaks of God calling things to exist that do not now exist. You know, a comment needs to be made regarding those 
words. There are some in what has been called the word faith movement who have argued that faith is calling things that don't exist as if they do exist. So, for instance, they're going to argue that if you're sick, you should claim that you're healthy in Christ. And if you're poor, you should claim that you're rich in Christ and so forth. Call into being things that don't exist. Now, whatever you think of this theology, please notice this passage does not say that faith is the ability to call things that don't exist as though they do. Notice carefully, that is not a description of faith. It is a description of God. Before matter existed, God simply said, let there be light, and there was light. When God speaks, the universe simply comes into existence. When Jesus stood at the door of Lazarus' tomb and spoke, Lazarus simply came to life. Such is the nature of God's word. Here's the point. Only God can do that. If you don't agree, I challenge you to speak a universe into existence. And here's a little secret. You're not God. I know some of you are going to be very disturbed by that thought, but if you're going to have to get used to that thought, real faith is not claiming things that don't exist. Hear me. You're not called upon to believe in faith. You're called upon to believe in God. Real faith is trusting a God before whom nothing is impossible, and that's what Abraham did. He did not claim that his enemies would be defeated, nor did he claim that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. He did nothing of the kind, and indeed the entire story is the other way around. God claimed that he would protect Abraham, and God claimed his descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And Abraham did not believe in his faith. He believed in God. He was in the presence of God and believed whatever God promised was true. So when God said that his faith was counted as righteousness, Abraham, with all his sins, even believed that. So how important is that? Years ago, I had an encounter with a woman who told me of the life she had lived prior to her conversion. It was filled with sins I would not mention to others, never mind on the air. But now that she had found Christ and married a wonderful Christian husband, and she was expecting her first child— But she was troubled. She said, with all my sins, I know I deserve punishment, and I wonder if my child will either die or be born as a special needs child. And I told her I had no idea what God had intended for her child, but I promised her one thing was true. God would punish her. And she was shocked. She expected me to comfort her, and here I was confirming her worst fears. She asked me how I knew it, and I told her because God had promised her that the death of Jesus, his son, was full payment for all of her sins. And then I said to her, and you, in arrogance, have looked at the promise of God and told him he's like the most unethical among us. He makes promises, and he doesn't keep them. You've charged God with lying. You simply do not believe him. God's going to respond. In an instant, her face just lit up, and she began to smile. And she said, I do believe, and my soul is at peace. See, that's what faith is. It trusts God when he speaks, and that trust is done in his presence. Let's look at the second characteristic of saving faith. It finds hope in hopeless situations. Verse 18 says, In hope he believed against hope that he would become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. The situation for Abraham had become hopeless. Sarah was well beyond childbearing years. The situation was against hope. I love that phrase. He believed against hope. Listen, there are many hopeless situations. Moses standing in front of the Red Sea with the Egyptian military bearing down on him. That's hopeless. That situation stands against hope. 
Joshua standing outside of Jericho, a city with thick walls and impossible defenses. No hope there. Samson, a now blinded and defeated and humiliated weakling, standing chained inside the Philistine temple, listening to the mocking of his enemies. I guess his day had passed him by. David, a shepherd boy, standing in front of Goliath the giant, who held a huge sword and knew how to use it. Looks like a short, one-sided fight. Hezekiah, surrounded by the Assyrian mega-fighting force. Jesus standing outside the tomb of his dead friend Lazarus. The disciples crowded into a room in fear that after Jesus had been crucified, all hope was gone. All of that. In fact, the entire biblical count is against hope. Does that sound like your own life? Let me ask you, what is hopeless for you right now? A pastor, someone will say, I've, I've lost my job and, and I'm too old to retrain. That's against hope. My child has been diagnosed with leukemia. I'm in despair. I'm 35 and I'll never find a mate in my life. I'm a failure at everything. But now hear the ultimate hope against hope statement. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. See, here's an assignment. Go home and look in the mirror. You notice that those lines in your face look like water ravines on a mountain? Do you notice that the veins in your legs in just a few years are going to start looking like road maps? Do you notice that the jump in your step is more like a shuffle in your step? Do you notice that the twinkle in your eye is more like an uncontrollable twitch? But against all hope, hear these words of Jesus, whoever, whoever believes in me, yet shall he live. See, I want to introduce you to the God of hopeless causes. He is the God of Abraham. He is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that don't exist. Saving faith simply believes in hopeless situations. Saving faith has seen the face of God and sees in his face the answer to everything that we've ever needed. Saving faith believes that our many sins are covered in the cross because the God who spoke that cannot lie. We've only just begun to take a look at a few of the characteristics of saving faith, but what a rich introduction this has been. Even as Christians, we need to be reminded and perhaps retaught what the essence of real faith in God really is and how it works out in our lives. When we return after the break, Dr. Neufeld continues this discussion with the remaining five things that define faith in Romans. Thanks for listening today. Did you know that in addition to the regular broadcasts featuring Dr. John Neufeld's teaching, you can also get access to his personal blog each week. Every Monday, you'll enjoy Dr. Neufeld's insightful reflections as he opens the Word and speaks to how the Bible has made a significant impact on his own life. So check it out at backtothebible.ca. And don't forget, as this is the last day of this series on Romans, you can order your own personal copy on CD for only $20 plus shipping and handling. Just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's rejoin Dr. Neufeld as he continues in Romans chapter 4, verses 16 to 25. We have been looking at seven characteristics of saving faith, Here now is the third. Saving faith does not weaken when things look impossible. 
Verse 19 says, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Abraham learned to trust in his God rather than to fear the impossible. So many of us, when faced with the impossible, feel our legs start to tremble and we imagine the worst. How can we remain strong in faith in a world where evil so often seems to prevail? The answer is right here in this text. It is found in the contrast between Abraham's old body and the facts of God's promises. That brings us to our fourth characteristic of saving faith. It is molded by preferring what is unseen. One great theologian put it this way, There's nothing more injurious to faith than to fasten our minds to our eyes. Paul put it this way, and I'm reading from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18, where he says, As we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So let me ask you, what are you looking at? Someone will say, I've fastened my mind to the internet, or I've fastened my mind to the media, or I've fastened my mind to the opinions of men, or I've fastened my mind to what I see every day. After all, seeing is believing. If you do that, your faith will not be molded. Everything you see is transient. I mean, go outdoors and look at everything you see. One day it will all cease to exist. If you can see the unseen, if you can see God, if you can listen to his promises, then there are no hopeless scenarios. Your reaction to things depends on what you notice. But someone will say, how can I begin like Abraham to prefer the unseen? How can I become strong in faith? I find I'm so weak. Well, let's look at verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So here's the next principle of saving faith. It finds strength by practicing worship. By that, I mean so much more than showing up in church once a week, although that is important. No, it means more. We need to give God glory. But what does that mean? Do you remember Romans 1.21? We need to honor God as God and give thanks to Him. When we studied that passage, we noted that the pathway away from God begins when we fail to thank God for everything. Now in chapter 4, verse 20, Paul tells us that we strengthen our faith when we thank God for everything. Look, right now, some of you are facing a struggle of great proportions. You may be panicked. Perhaps you're angry or frustrated. You want to complain. You want to blame someone. Listen, instead of that, you need to consciously begin by thanking God. Why? Because look ahead to Romans 8.28. God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love him. Today, you may be facing a crisis because God wants to deepen your wisdom, or God wants you to see the unseen, or God wants you to step back and see his deliverance. Whatever is happening to you as a believer is for your good, and the hand of a sovereign God is at work. Therefore, worship him. What do we know about saving faith? Well, it's established by being in God's presence. It finds hope when others see none. It does not weaken when the crisis deepens. It sees the unseen. It worships and it grows in conviction. The conviction is this, God can be counted on. Romans 4.21 says, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I love that phrase, fully convinced. Not partially convinced or trying to figure it out, but fully convinced. Now, lest you feel too defeated here, let me point out that if we study the life of Abraham, we should see that Abraham took some time to come to that, but eventually did. And that, dear friends, is the goal, to grow in this conviction. 
Ultimately, all of us must find this conviction regarding our own salvation. When I first came to Christ, I knew I was a sinner, but would have put my sins down to about three problem areas. I thought if I could fix those three areas, I'd just be fine. But as I grew in Christ and in sensitivity to Christ's Holy Spirit, I found out to my dismay that I had more sins and my knowledge of my own sins began to overwhelm me and I began to despair that I was even a Christian. But then I came back to the cross of Jesus. God has in Christ credited righteousness to my account. I can't see it, but I believe it. And slowly there's a growing conviction in me that what God has promised in the cross is for me. Do you struggle with assurance of faith? Do you sometimes wonder if you're forgiven? Do you wonder if God loves you? Are you sometimes overwhelmed with your own sin? Hear me, all Christians are at times, but in all of us, there is a growing conviction that God promised something to us on the cross and what he has promised, he is able to do. So we come to the final characteristic of saving faith, and here it is. It results in God counting us as righteous. Romans 4.22 says that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. God counts our faith as righteousness. And here's a little secret. If all that faith is, is confidence in God and in his power and in his promises, then what God is counting is himself, his power, and his integrity. Faith is merely for us that our lives become a mirror reflecting back to God, and God views his image in us, and he counts that as righteousness. I know that's a little hard to understand, but let me try this illustration. Imagine you have a little child, and and you say to your three-year-old little sweetheart, Honey, take my hand, and I'll take you safely across the street. And your little child trusts you perfectly and stretches out her hand, even though the traffic is heavy and the noisy and big trucks are lumbering across the road. But that little hand in your hand reflects the faith of your daughter, and it is that hand in yours that is your daughter's statement, Dad, I know that you can get me there safely. That hand is a statement not about your daughter's ability. It's about your ability as her father. And that's what faith is. It is a confident statement of God's ability, and God counts that as righteousness. How are our hands, like that little girl's hands, in the hands of God? Well, it's done in faith, established by being in God's presence, finding hope in hopeless situations, growing in strength the harder things get, preferring what is unseen, finding strength through thankfulness and worship, growing in the conviction that God is counted on. And this results in God not counting our sins against us, but declaring us as righteous. What we have left in Romans 4 is what many commentators think to be an ancient Christian confession of faith. Let me read verses 23 to 25. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. As I end this series on Romans, I have a word for all of you who believe. When the Lord Jesus called you to be his own, he knew everything about you. He knew your fears. He knew your sins. He knew those corners of darkness in your life, areas of darkness you never speak about. Nothing was hidden from his gaze, and you stood condemned. But Jesus was sent, and he bore your condemnation. He took it away, and then he called you to be his own. At times you fear. You fear that it all might be too good to be true. 
After all, you have moments when you slip back to the old behavior patterns, that behavior that brought about the anger of God against you in the first place. And so you've tried to correct this, but in this you've recognized something. None of this was needed. All you needed was to be in God's presence and see the unseen and allow your soul to be flooded with the goodness and the mercy and the love and the loveliness of God, his power, his glory, his splendor, and to see that God is the keeper of promises. And all he wants is that you believe. And as you believe in his power and in his love, he will transform you piece by piece to be more like him. And when you cross over from this life into the life to come, he will welcome you, yes, even you, in spite of your sins, because the cross of Jesus, his death was a ransom. It justified you, and you were clean before him. And now let me also say to all of those of you who do not yet believe, this is a promise that can become yours. All that you need to see is that Christ is offering you a marvelous gift. So would you pray along with me? Lord Jesus, I want the gift that you offer. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I am judged before God and there's no hope. But I hear that Jesus was my ransom, that he took away my sins and died on the cross for me, and that his death satisfies the justice of God. And if you say that's the case, well then, Lord, I believe. I believe from the bottom of my heart. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe so deeply. I want to entrust my entire life into your hands. I want to become your servants. I want you to call the shots for my life. I want you, O Lord God, to be my Savior and my Lord. And so I give you my life. Take it and use it for your glory. If you prayed that for the very first time, might I ask you, would you write us here at Back to the Bible? Let us know that you've become a new creation in Christ, and we want to make sure that we're praying for you. God bless you. What a great message. I hope that this final teaching has opened your eyes to see the incredible truth about faith in God and His willingness to receive you in faith believing. I pray that we may all continue to grow in our understanding and experience of Jesus more and more, even amidst the ups and downs of life, knowing as we do so, he will count us righteous in his sight. Over the past few weeks, it's been astounding to hear and discover the richness of God's word to us in the first four chapters of Romans. Be sure to join us next week as Dr. Neufeld opens up the book of Matthew for a special two-week series in preparation for our Easter messages entitled, The King Goes Public. And as Dr. Neufeld mentioned, if you've made a decision for Christ today, would you write us so that we can be praying for you? You can do so at info at backtothebible.ca or for other contact information at backtothebible.ca. I hope you've enjoyed listening to these messages on Romans. We're so blessed to be part of enriching your walk with Christ. We're also grateful because we know that without our dedicated partners, the offering of this daily ministry just wouldn't be possible. But through the years, with your partnership and God's provision, the resources of ministry have been made available for us to minister right across the country. If you've never considered playing an integral part in spreading God's word so that people can hear the gospel and grow in their faith, 
then I'd like to personally invite you to partner with us, especially during this month of March, when we've been privileged of presenting our March Match campaign. In short, for every dollar you offer this month, it will be matched by the generous pledge of a group of our ministry friends up to $20,000. If you're a regular giver or perhaps never given to the ministry before, March is a great month to start. So call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.